Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. Eight of the top 10 Irish companies choose to do business with us. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the first Irish Times Business Podcast of 2015. This is Wednesday, January 7th. I'm Kieran Hancock and this week's show will look at the latest consumer electronic gadgets, the whole area of privacy in an increasingly electronic world and the latest twist in the bankruptcy case of former Anglo-Irish Bank Chief Executive David Drum. We'll start with the Drum case. I'm joined on the line by Simon Carswell, the Washington DC correspondent of the Irish Times, who's been reporting on the latest twist in the Drum case. And Simon, thank you for joining us. It's a pretty damning judgment against them. Yeah, I guess anyone who'd sat through the six-day trial in May and June of last year probably wasn't surprised that the judges denied him a discharge from bankruptcy, which effectively means he can't get a fresh financial start, he can't walk away from his debts of about $10.5 million. Uh, but what's surprising is, I think, is just the judges' kind of devastating assessment of the former banker. It's pretty damning stuff. Uh, and certainly Judge Frank Bailey, the um, Massachusetts bankruptcy judge, he doesn't mince his words. He says that he found Drum not remotely credible. He said his conduct was both knowing and fraudulent in the statements he made to the bankruptcy court. Um, and he also said that the statements made by Drum were replete with knowingly false statements, failures to disclose, efforts to misdirect and outright lies. Um, it's, it was, it's pretty damaging for David Drum. He does have 14 days to appeal the judge's ruling. But given the fact that this is a pretty bulletproof ruling, it's 122 pages, um, and the judge goes into some pretty significant detail about why he thinks David Drum shouldn't be given a fresh financial start and because the conduct that he showed in the court process and in the bankruptcy process does not warrant a discharge from bankruptcy. It seems unlikely that David Drum, even if he did try to appeal, that an appeal would be granted against the judge's ruling. The bank, IBRC, the former Anglo-Irish bank, uh, sought to challenge his discharge from bankruptcy on the basis that Drum failed to disclose uh, cash and property transfers of more than 1 million euro to his wife Lorraine. And though most of those transfers took place in late 2008 and into 2009 at the time, in 2008 when the bank was facing collapse and David Drum's own financial net worth based on the shares in the bank uh, were, was plummeting and uh, the bank was inching towards nationalisation. So it's a pretty difficult ruling for David Drum uh, and really he, he's, he's now exposed to potential legal actions from his creditors given that he's lost the protection of the court. Simon, you report today that his personal debts are of, of the order of €10 million euro plus. How much of that is actually owed to the bank? Well, the vast bulk of it is owed to the bank. He owes more than €8.5 million euros to the bank. And most of that relates to loans that David Drum 
uh, drew from the bank when he was chief executive of the bank to buy shares in the bank. So uh, any assets that were underlying those loans or backing those loans are now worthless given that the bank is defunct it's, 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 it's since its nationalisation and liquidation. So uh, really the bank was pursuing him over that debt and uh, he has some of the debts to other creditors. But yes, Anglo is the main uh, creditor in this, in this bankruptcy case. So what's the chance of Irish taxpayers ever seeing any of this money back? Well, there's a couple of things that could happen next. Uh, given that he does lose the protection of the court, uh, creditors can now take legal actions against Drum. Uh, bankruptcy affords uh, debtors the opportunity to say, well, don't take any legal action against me and I'll try to liquidate my assets and pay what I can back. Given that that protection is gone, creditors can sue him in the American courts or in the Irish courts. Um, IBRC could take a legal action against him in Ireland and get a judgment there or in the US courts if it's in Ireland. They could and if they're successful in getting that judgment, they can have it recognised in the US. And they can pursue Drum for income that he earns. We know that he's been working out of offices of a company called Safeway Atlantic. It's a scaffolding company just outside New York City in New Jersey. And he does earn money in his capacity working from those offices. So uh, the bank, if they secure a judgment against him in the US, could seek an attachment order or an order of garnishment through the courts where they could try and get some of that income and they could get a lien against future income as well. They could also pursue him for any assets that he has acquired. But I suppose people reading the judgment would go, well, given that all these cash transfers and property transfers to his wife took place in 2008, 2009, might there be a possibility that those assets could be clawed back? What's complicating that is that the bankruptcy trustee in David Drum's case uh, reached a settlement with Lorraine Drum back in 2012. And under that settlement agreement, she agreed to pay the trustee, which is effectively the bankruptcy estate and David Drum's creditors, almost a million euro. And on the basis of that payment, uh, Lorraine Drum reached an agreement that the trustee would settle any claims against her that she could that she'd fraudulently benefited from assets transfers to her by her husband. So there's a question mark over whether uh, the bank can pursue uh, David Drum over his share of those remaining assets or indeed pursue his wife uh, for the assets that were transferred to her by, by David Drum in 2009. Simon, bankruptcy is, is supposed to involve a level of pain and distress for those who actually go through the, the process. In your opinion, from what you've seen over the last uh, few years, reporting on David Drummond and this case, uh, does he demonstrate any signs of having gone through any distress or any financial pain as a result of this? Well, certainly he had said to the court uh, and his wife had told the court that they had been under financial duress during the, uh, the, the time of the, the, the height of the financial crisis in the autumn of 2008. She had said, and the reason for the transfers was she had wanted money of her own because she was concerned about her husband. Uh, she was concerned about their marriage. It was severely strained because of the stress he was under. She was concerned about his health. Uh, she was afraid that he might drop dead of a heart attack, as she told the court. So she wanted that money of her own, and she was asked how much did she want, did she ask her husband for, and she said, like a million euro. So uh, that money was transferred to her, but the judge really didn't buy the argument that she wanted money to, uh, of her own to protect for herself and for her children. He felt that, well, it was as much to avoid family assets being seized by David Drum's creditors, and in particular Anglo-Irish Bank or Irish Bank Resolution Corporation. So he has undergone some pain through the process. Uh, in court, he was told that his advisors said to him, well, if you go through U.S. bankruptcy, it's like getting naked in public, is what they described it as. And 
really, this is why uh, David Drum's application to have a discharge from his debts has failed. He failed to get fully naked in public, to use his words, and use the words of his advisor. Uh, he failed to disclose everything. If you go through bankruptcy in the U.S., you have to show the court everything. You have to show the court of all asset, asset transfers that took place in the two years prior to you filing for bankruptcy, and Drum failed to do that. And that really was the reason why... Um, a, the judge denied him discharge from bankruptcy. Uh, and the findings against him are pretty comprehensive. If you look at it, there were 52 objections tabled by the bank as to why he should not get a fresh financial start. And the judge found that uh, there were 30 cases or 30 counts that uh, he shouldn't be entitled to a, a bankruptcy and that the bank had established a cause to block that discharge from bankruptcy. And in, the judge only required one single count to block the discharge. So it shows the weight of evidence against David Drum and just how little he failed to disclose when he was filing for bankruptcy. Uh, Simon, actually, the judge found that Drum was no bumbler and said he was clearly a controlling type and he knew what he was doing. So it would seem that he was very strategic in the way he approached this case. Yeah, and the judge analysed Drum's character on that. He assessed Drum's defence. Uh, Drum had said that he failed to uh, disclose certain transfers to his wife in his bankruptcy filings. They were down to innocent mistakes or simple mistakes by him and his advisors. But the judge didn't buy it. The judge uh, described it as the so stupid defence. Drum had argued that no one would be so stupid as to attempt what he was being accused of, knowing that he would forfeit the chance to walk away from more than 10 million euro in debt. Well, the judge looked at that and delved a bit deeper into Drum's character, and he said, well, he found Drum to be a quick thinker, adept in testimony, intended to deflect, misdirect, avoid, and fabricate. And he didn't buy the fact that uh, Drum failed to disclose certain things or misunderstood that he was supposed to disclose certain transfers and then simply forgot others and that these were the ones which he was most concerned about in the case. And the judge said that this was exceedingly implausible. And he concluded, I have no trouble finding him capable of the kind of stupidity of which he stands accused. And he also looked a little bit deeper at his character. He said um, he was, uh, in accounting and knowledge of financial affairs, is detailed, precise, almost obsessive. He is confident in strategizing. And by the time he filed his bankruptcy petition, he'd been planning and strategizing for this eventuality for more than two years. And he found that Drum had systematically transferred assets to his wife to uh, hinder and defraud and delay uh, uh, efforts by creditors to recoup their debts. And he described him as no bumbler and a clearly controlling type. He knew what he was doing, the judge said. So pretty damning stuff from Judge Frank Bailey. And Simon, Fianna Fáil said today that David Drum should be made to come home and attend the banking inquiry. And there have been reports that the Director of Public Prosecution uh, has begun the process of seeking his extradition back to Ireland on criminal charges. Um, those papers, uh, a Garda file has been sent via the Departments of Justice and the Departments of Foreign Affairs to the US authorities. Any thoughts on that? Well, based on the reports that have come out today and the fact that the guards and the Director of Public Prosecutions has moved forward with this, and given the charges that have been brought in the Irish courts against other individuals at Anglo-Irish Bank, uh, I think the next chapter for David Drum is very much the criminal chapter and whether uh, he will be extradited back to Ireland to face some of the charges that his former colleagues have been charged with in the Irish courts. And Simon, given his role in the collapse of Anglo-Irish Bank, which was the biggest banking collapse in Ireland, one of the biggest in Europe, probably one of the biggest in the world, I guess, if we were to rank them, how is it that he has managed to find employment in the United States? I mean, it seems incredible to most people that anybody would want to employ this man. Well, I think that he has established, uh, long-established relationships with um, former clients, uh, clients of the former Anglo-Irish Bank in the U.S. Uh, he certainly seems to have uh, developed strong relations with some of the 
customers in both the construction, building and related industries in the US through his time uh, at Anglo-Irish Bank. It must be recalled that uh, Drum was based over in the US and helped to establish uh, Anglo's Boston office and US operation in 1993 from the from through the mid 90s. So he's been he has uh, experience of the US market and he's long established relationships with people uh, Irish people and Irish American uh, customers of the bank. Okay, Simon Carswell, Washington DC correspondent of the Irish Times. Thank you for joining us. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life September 2014. I'm now joined in studio by Carlin Lillington, Irish Times technology columnist. And Carlin, you've been writing about the issue of digital privacy for some time now, and you have a column in this week's newspaper uh, in which you say that digital privacy is going to be one of the big issues of 2015. Why so? Because I think it's been queued up now over the last 18 months, um, starting with Edward Snowden's revelations on National Security Agency and GCHQ, survey, broad levels of surveillance that were into business data and looking at citizen data. Um, people are very aware of these issues, but we also have a number of key political and policy decisions coming this year or that will be heavily debated this year, especially at the European level. And most of them actually have an Irish connection as well. Well, um, I suppose the two most important and interlocking issues on the policy side will be an EU data protection regulation that was proposed a couple of years ago now and is still working its way through a uh, uh, bitter battles and heavy lobbying by industry and by governments. It would give far greater protection to citizen data. The, the idea behind it is really to smooth out um, business so that every that businesses don't have to deal with separate data protection regimes in every single EU state, which is the current situation. The idea of introducing a regulation is to smooth it all out, make it really easy bring to do business, bring harmony in. But um, there were also proposals that were ironed out when Ireland had the EU presidency, so that's really where this began to gather steam, um, to give far greater protections to citizen data, to impose very large fines on companies, a percentage of global annual revenue, um, which is very significant potentially for data breaches, and also to give citizens a, a, the right to move their data around or remove their data in a, in a right, right to be forgotten. To be forgotten. Um, in in any case, the EU a court case granted a, a limited right to be forgotten anyway. So, but there's still battles around how strong might that be enhanced? Might it be um, left out of the data protection regulation entirely? So that's quite important. Interconnected with that is due to a case brought by an Irish. Ad, a privacy advocacy group called Digital Rights Ireland, which challenged the legality 
of a piece of legislation in Ireland that allowed the state to withhold communications data and store it for a couple of years. It's called data retention. And this was in case it was needed in the future for a, a, a court case or law enforcement investigation. Um, DRI challenged the, the, the legality of that and said it was um, wide-scale surveillance on the entire Irish population. Rabbit. It was referred to the European Court of Justice, the highest court in Europe. The ECJ very resoundingly threw it out and absolutely agreed on those principal points that it violated privacy and human, and, and human rights for EU citizens. Now, in the coming year, something's going to have to be done about that because you can't just have this vacuum where nothing at all is being retained because law enforcement do need to have... Um, carefully defined access, I would argue, with good oversight and a, and a far more transparent process. And that's pretty much what the ECJ argued. So we're looking, is that going to happen in the coming year? The, it's, certainly it's it's got to be put back on the agenda as well. That original court case, high court case, is probably going to come back to Ireland, um, be reopened because it's an ongoing case. It didn't, the, the ECJ um, referral was only because the court wanted a clarification on whether the ECJ felt the original European directive on which the Irish law is based had um, good legal grounding and the ECJ said no. So we've got this kind of limbo. We also have this Microsoft case as well. Explain and that to us. this is a huge case again mm. with an Irish connection. This was um, this is arises out of an ongoing case in the U.S. in the state of New York. In w- there's a drug tr- a drugs trial there, and the judge in that trial said to Microsoft, "We need to get hold of some emails. The emails happen to be over in your data center in Ireland. This is all part of the new cloud computing era in which data can really be held anywhere." Um, we want those emails as evidence. And Microsoft said, well, no, you can't have them because you're just, you, you as a court should not have the right to just come straight to us as a company and make us hand over information that's actually not held in the US but is held abroad. You need to go through existing treaties to ask for that. And so and Microsoft, where does Ireland stand? And Ireland, interestingly, um, it, it, the principle of the case is enormous. It's seen as underlying the whole basis on which cloud computing and e-commerce stands. If that judge's request is upheld, it has quite serious implications for business. Therefore, a whole panoply of the biggest tech companies in the world have rode in behind Microsoft on this. And interestingly, the Irish government itself asked to um, be a friend of the court, a, a specific role in which it can offer its own opinion. And that's quite unusual for a state government to do this in any court case internationally. It's a tricky one for the Irish government, isn't it? Because Microsoft's a big employer here, as indeed are, are some of these other companies who rode in behind it. Yes, well, well, the government has rode in in, in backing Microsoft's stance, um, arguing that, yes, we, we already have a treaty with the U.S. under which the government or law enforcement agencies could come make a request for those emails and they would almost certainly be handed over because um, there has never been a case in which your, um, Ireland has refused that type of request. And there are also suggestions that there might be some more explosive material to come out of the Snowden files this yeah, year. Yeah, that can, that I think is quite interesting as well. Glenn Greenwald, the journalist who worked closely with Snowden on those initial revelations, a Guardian journalist, has said that many of the most explosive elements of those um, documents that, that have been slowly um, revealed over the last 18 months or so 
are yet to come out. And if that's the case, as um, has happened over the past 18 months, they're going to be very important to all of those debates that we've just talked about here. Yeah. One of the interesting things, I think, Carlin, about this whole privacy debate is that we seem to um, we seem to get in a twist about the state having these surveillance Big Brother type surveillance uh, methods in place, particularly the US. And yet uh, people on an individual basis seem to be willing to give all sorts of personal data to companies like Facebook and Google and Apple without a moment's thought. And I suppose that would be an argument that privacy advocates for a long time have tried to make this debate less confusing and and point out that people need to be more aware of what and not not just that they hand over the information because it's one thing to say okay well, you know I I posted pictures of my holiday and uh, you know and it's that's my choice but the fact that we, people survey after survey and study after study has shown that people have very little understanding of what companies actually do with that information mm-hmm. and what rights they sign over when they post that information and um, nor did they understand that by providing a platform for that information or even Google for your searches, the fact that all that information then is monetized in some way through advertising so that we see it as a free service and our right to have it and it's wonderful to do all of this without really thinking through the broader picture. I think a lot of what's coming up um, in the privacy debate now, and especially sort of post-Snowden, as people begin to realize that there are these banks of information held in various places and that we don't actually know or understand very well how they're used. And there's a lot of evidence um, that it's used in ways that violate what the companies actually tell us they're going to do with it in the first place. So this is a very broad um a broad debate that's really only just beginning. In many ways, you know, the, the people say, well, the horse is bolted out of the stable. Well, we, we've never really even looked at the stable mm. <laughs> to start with and how it's been constructed. And, and we're going, it's, it's something that we now need to return to, I think, and look more closely as um, a society and think about how we want to manage that data and what kind of transparency we want there. And also not to forget that that whole idea of transparency about data, that uh, that there should be a right to access to information, was one that was put in place. The idea was that the citizen should have that transparency about the powers that oversee them, not that it should be companies controlling all that information and therefore we should be demanding transparency in order to be... Um, monetized, if you will. Sure, yeah. Uh, But in a nutshell, you know, given all the uncertainty, all the cases out there that are going on, EU directives and so on, in a nutshell, what are your rights to data privacy as an ordinary (laughs) citizen? (laughs) It's, um, I don't know if you can say that there are... um, well, there are fundamental rights. You have a right to privacy. That's underwritten in, in the human rights that that all of us are granted. There's also certain rights that you could infer from the Irish Constitution, I suppose. It's defining what those borders are on privacy that's important. But but there's clearly um, not a right to mass surveillance. You, you um, And determining where those borders are is... is the tricky bit. And also making sure that people understand how their information is used is is important as well. But there are rights. For example, you can't, you know, the departments can't disclose um, personal information. You can't, they can't sell personal information. They've They've been charged, but not particularly adequately punished for for having released. Inf- particularly, the Department of Social Welfare has been known to leak information to journalists and um, private investigators, for example. Um, 
we do have a right to not have those things happen with our information, but then you start to get down into fine detail. And some and things like the data protection directive will, or regulation will be designed to give very specific protections at a greater level than what exists now. Yeah. And of course, mass surveillance is a it is necessary, isn't it, to counter terrorism in some in some countries? Perhaps not in Ireland, but in other countries in the United States. I would States argue. So. I don't think mass surveillance is ever is is ever mandated, but I think targeted surveillance is. And th- there's there's a very important difference between the two. Targeted surveillance means that people that um, for various reasons um, come to the interest of the authorities then can, with appropriate warrants, be um, investigated and followed and put under surveillance. When you gather data in a wholesale way on a mass population, what you tend to do is produce innumerable false positives, which create a nightmare for the people that are the false positives, but also um, really eats away at the idea that the individual is entitled to a private life and I don't think anywhere um, there's, except the most severe dictatorships, would you have populations that would um, be placed under mass surveillance where courts would not say that's not okay. And we've seen both in Europe and the U.S. courts feeling increasingly uncomfortable with what some governments are saying they need to be able to do. And and it is important to note that in the U.S. where the NSA in particular said, um, well, uh, you know, we've produced, we've we've uncovered all these plots and 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 saved lives prospectively by doing this kind of work. They have not been able to produce a single case that the um, Congress accepted as being an example of of uh, a need for that type of surveillance in order to uncover certain types of plots. The F- same happened with the FBI. I mean, the, this has mm. been entirely mm. discredited that these things. Okay, so where do you think this is going to going to go in two thousand and fifteen? Um, I think that we will see a continued debate about all of these issues, a, a, a more informed debate, certainly, because citizens are have a much greater awareness now of violations. I think I think we will see the, at either the introduction of the data protection regulation or the very tail end of negotiations with it introduced in early 2016, which will bring a sort of resolution to certain areas. I also think we'll see movement on data retention because they can't have nothing there. And you you could end up with cases where during a trial the evidence is thrown out because it was gathered improperly under a, a regime that's now discredited at EU level. So something something has to come in there and both those things will give greater resolution and understanding to for businesses and for citizens and for governments once they're implemented. Okay, Carlin, thank you for joining us. We'll stay in the United States for our next item. Irish Times technology expert Kira O'Brien has been attending the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas and finding out about the next generation of gadgets. Everything from new cars to apps that teach children how to brush their teeth and so-called Internet of Things. Kira, other than the temperatures in Vegas, what's hot this year? Well... As we'd expected, uh, 4K TVs are big again this year. Same with um, fitness apps, fitness devices, and, of course, then the Internet of Things. Now, that covers quite a lot. Um, the 4K TVs, I suppose, if we start with those, mm. uh, 4K has been it's been kind of mentioned a few times in Vegas uh, at CES. I mean, we're going back what a couple is, what of years. What is 4K, just to explain to the listeners? 
basically what it is at the moment most people would have a high definition high definition tv this is roughly four times the resolution of high definition tv so it has more lines therefore more detail uh, it actually looks quite good if you've seen something like um the hobbit in the high frame rate it's that kind of detail uh, and it's quite realistic looking. It's just, it's, it's a stunning thing to actually see. It doesn't really come across as well when you're taking photographs and video of it. It's something you really have to see in person. So what they're actually looking at the moment is that they're trying to push 4K TVs because obviously a few years ago it was all about 3D. Every TV company was trying to push you into having 3D. That didn't really work. I mean, people didn't take to it as much, partly because I suppose it's quite antisocial uh, to have to put a pair of glasses on while you're watching telly, partly because you have to sit up straight to actually, you can't slump watching 3D. It just doesn't look right. So they've, over the last couple of years, it's actually been phased out. I think the biggest indicator uh, of the fact that it's really changed their focus was LG used to do this massive display on their stand of 3D TVs and the technology and you just stand there just have this thing running the whole time you'd stand there with your, your glasses take a look at it and everybody be wowed by it this year that's gone and it's all kind of 4K TVs and how much are we talking about in terms of a 4K TV? Well, they're trying to make them a bit more. Um, they're trying to make them a bit more accessible. So they're they're, they're bringing in mid-range ones, which would be I suppose under a thousand dollars. But you're still looking at quite expensive TVs. Now, this always happens. I mean, when high, high definition TVs came out first, uh, they were quite expensive. I mean, you would have been paying upwards of eight or nine hundred euro, uh, even when they were out a little while. But you know, at this point now most people would have a high definition TV you can pick one up for a couple of hundred euro the same thing is likely to happen again it happened with 3D TVs now a lot of TVs actually have the 3D built into it people just aren't really using it so we'd expect to see the same now with 4K TVs they were massively expensive when they were first brought out they're also quite big this is probably one of the issues that some people will have with it. You don't get a 4K TV in a 20-inch TV or a 32-inch TV. Or you, know, you have to have the big size to actually appreciate it. So you're talking about a 55-inch TV. That's obviously going to cost quite a bit. Uh, yeah, and it's going to be a problem for some small Irish apartments. I would have thought it's a rather large TV screen to have in a, in a small uh, apartment in Dublin. Um, what about content? Because one of the problems around HD televisions when they came out is that there wasn't an awful lot of HD content around at that time to fully appreciate the technology that was available. Is there much by way of 4K standard content? Well, all Hollywood movies are basically shot in 4K and they have been for a long time. So... You know, the basic material is there. They just don't really make it out of the, the cinema screens. It's rare that you would actually get them. So Sony and any of the, the picture studios would actually have all this content there. The last couple of years, Sony has been kind of keen to push that it has a service that you, know, you can download the 4K movies from. The problem is, is that... Um, it's not really set up for broadcast at the moment. You're not, you don't have any 4K broadcast channels. Now, I know that the World Cup was shot in 4K for some of the matches, um, and that content was kind of sent out as a test broadcast, wasn't really widely available, and as far as I can remember, what they actually did was they, they put a kind of a package together that people could look at on their 4K TVs if they had one. It's still a problem. I mean, it's, it's not... Um, as much of a problem because companies like Netflix and Amazon Prime are actually starting to offer uh, downloadable 4K content. You're going to run into an issue with that as well because obviously, you know, 4K. If you, if you look at say uh, an average standard definition movie to download, it's you know it's it's a, it's of a certain size. Then 
it's quite low compared to the height definition version, uh, which, you know, you may be looking at uh, up to a gig or two gigs, depending on what you're actually watching. Now, 4K obviously is going to take up that bit much more space on your broadband. So if you've bad broadband, you're not going to be able to really take advantage of this. They're also looking at, Panasonic introduced a prototype uh, Blu-ray DVD player that will actually use 4K as well. Um, at the moment, really, if you have a 4K TV, what you're looking at is upscaling the content, which uses software to fill in the gaps in the pixels. So your standard high-definition content will get upscaled to 4K on your TV. Okay. Now, in terms of health gadgets, uh, what have you seen? There's been a lot, actually, of health gadgets. Um, again, this is something that's been significant over the past couple of years. People are throwing fitness bands and random things at you. Um, this year, I think what I've noticed is that wearable technology is actually becoming wearable. Um, there's a few of the, the activity trackers, for example, Withings doing uh, called the Activity Pop. I think it um, basically looks like a normal watch. You wouldn't be ashamed to be seen with this in public. Part of the problem is, is that um, a lot of the activity trackers tend to be chunky, clunky. Uh, for some people, you know, the silicon bands are a complete no-go. This year, uh, this, I think the, the Misfit um, has actually done, the, the, the Misfit Shine, they've kind of had a uh, tie-in with Swarovski and they've made um, a band that actually looks a bit more like jewellery. Um, obviously, when you get the, the things like you know the, the eye ring and a few others that were, uh, sorry, Ringley and a few others that were kind of specific jewellery, they, they were kind of limited in what they did. I mean, now we're actually seeing wearable technology that will do what you need it to that looks good. Um, a few things that I saw that were kind of impressive over the last couple of days uh, was uh, one of them was a, a temperature uh, a thermometer reader for a baby that will actually stick onto their skin and automatically send data to um, a smartphone or a tablet, which can then be passed on to a healthcare giver. Now, that's not got FDA approval yet, but they're actually in the process of getting it. Um, okay. In terms of the Internet of Things, what's the big concept at this year's show? The idea is now that I mean, Internet of Things, again, something that's been around for a while, the idea is not that you have everything connected to the Internet, but that it works for you. So LG in particular were talking about the Internet of Things and how it should actually be a part of your life. So the idea is you have it um, integrated into your, your smartwatch, which integrates with your, uh, your home system. So you walk out of the house, the watch recognizes that you're walk, you've left the house, uh, and then all the services in your house shut down. So say your, um, your, your appliances will go into standby mode or power off completely. You know, maybe your house will lock behind you. Your, um, your thermostat will turn down because it knows you're not in the house. Turns off the um, iron if you've left yes, it plugged in. Exactly. Okay. I mean, I, there's, there's, a, there's a great argument for that kind of stuff. And then you get into your car and you say to your watch that you want to go to uh, say you want to go to Galway, it will give you the it will connect to your car and then give you the route to get there. So the idea is that all these things work together, and it's not just having connectivity for connectivity's sake; it's that it all works to make your life that bit easier. Okay. Any Irish presence at the show? There's a couple of companies now. The only thing is, obviously, CES is quite big. There may still be a few lurking that I haven't seen. But I met uh, one company yesterday, um, a company called Recovered Hearing. Uh, which is taking part in the SOS Ventures and um, Accelerator. They're one of those companies, and what they actually do is it's a hearing protection. Um, it started off as a company that um, did. A, it started off actually as a young scientist project, and it was a, 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 a therapy for tinnitus. 
and they've now expanded, they're getting ready to launch their first product, uh, which will help people basically protect their hearing because obviously the, one of the, the, the biggest things is prevention rather than cure, but it will also help treat it. Right, and there's still a few days left. Anything coming down the track that uh, we should be aware of? Well, most of the big news has already been has already been announced. I mean, we, typically the way CES works is you have a press day on the Monday, the show opens on the Tuesday, and usually the bulk of all the press conferences are done on the Monday. A few things are leaked out. I mean, there's a few keynotes to go, but I mean, I think we've seen the big news at the moment. Um, there'll be smaller product announcements throughout the week, but for, for the most part, we're, we're kind of, I think I'm fairly happy now we have the, the major news. And are we any closer to self-drive cars? That's actually something, that's something that's still a, a good way off for various reasons. The technology for some of the cars is actually there. I mean, I've, I've been in um, when the BMW cars where the, it could actually change lanes by itself. Um, obviously, Google has been working an awful lot on this kind of autonomous car thing. Problem is, is it comes down to insurance. Uh, who's responsible if the car crashes, that kind of thing. And people, I don't think, are quite ready to completely give over control of their cars. But what we have seen is um, concept cars that show advanced features, like, say, uh, Golf, uh, the Volkswagen Golf, um, if, you are your, if you're continuously parking in a certain spot, it learns your parking path and it will park the car for you. Sounds like just the kind like of car that. I need. Yeah, <laughs> Yes, exactly. I mean, most of most cars uh, will have some sort of parking assist features now. I mean, whether it's even just down to you know parking sensors, or in some cases, will actually park the car kind of touch of a button for you. It will parallel park your car, which I actually desperately need because I have a fifty-fifty uh, hit rate on those things. You know, it usually takes me about three goes. All right, Kara Brian, thank you for joining uh, joining us from Vegas. We look forward to seeing some of those innovations in the years ahead. Okay, that's it for this week. I'd like to thank researcher Declan Collin, producer Sinead O'Shea and sound engineer JJ Vernon. My thanks also to our contributors Simon Carswell from Washington, D.C., Kira O'Brien from Las Vegas and Carlin Lillington in studio. Don't forget that you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.